0: Well, hello there. Tonight, this is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries and also a teacher at Mercy Church. And I want to welcome you to tonight's um, teaching as we continue going through our beholding the glory, looking at the real relationship with Jesus as evident in the tabernacle of David, and also learning how. The New Testament speaks of how we are in the days of God restoring the Tabernacle of David. We saw that in Acts chapter 15. So tonight we're going forward in our Tabernacle of David study. We only have a few more uh, lessons left that we're going to cover. And so tonight I want to take us into one step further. The last couple of lessons we've talked about the, um, the secret place with God being in that tabernacle of David that that David had built. We also looked at the um, shadow of the Almighty in the last lesson as we talked about that shadow which would be created when the fiery presence of God would rest between the cherubim above the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And so tonight we want to continue on and we're going to look at that glory cloud we're going to look at what some refer to as the Shekinah glory of God. We've heard that term before, but what does it mean? Well, it refers to the glory cloud of God's presence that would dwell between the cherubims on that mercy seat, behind the veil in the temple and in the tabernacle of Moses. But as we'll see, it's in the tabernacle of David also, The word Shekinah to refer to this glory is not found in the Bible, but the concept is. Jewish rabbis have considered this uh, and envisioned this expression to represent the dwelling. I know Zola Levitt um, mentions that in some of his scholarly works. It's a form of a Hebrew word that means he caused to dwell. It signifies a divine visitation of the presence or dwelling of the Lord on the earth, specifically when God's glorious presence would come and dwell behind the veil in the tabernacle of Moses or in the temple or in the tabernacle of David. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about the specifics of that and the contrast between the tabernacle of David and the tabernacle of Moses and the temple here a little bit later on, perhaps in the next lesson. And I want to just read you as we start out this verse from John chapter 1, verse 14. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was the glory in the flesh. He was that glory cloud that came in the flesh. And we saw him and we beheld his glory. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 speaks of the brightness of his glory. Or that shining forth, that outraying of the glory of God. Daniel chapter 3, in Daniel chapter 3, especially in verse 25 through 27, it speaks of this glory um, that was revealed when the three Hebrews, remember, were cast into the fiery furnace and then the king looked in and he saw a fourth man and I want to read verse 25, look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. The reason is because the glory was right there with them. The Son of God himself, that glory cloud, and the fire, the earthly fire, had no power against the glorious fire, the glorious presence of God that was with them. God's glory triumphed, and they were not harmed. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, we read in Matthew 17 about the what we call the transfiguration of Jesus, when he took three of his disciples up on the high mountain, and he became he the veil of his flesh. Hebrews talks about there being a veil in our flesh, and that veil of the flesh was pulled back, and God's glory shone through in that moment, and it's described as this glorious presence, this brightness and, and uh, glory that was revealed there. The glory cloud shone through and the veil was transformed and, and removed for that moment. Jesus himself is the embodiment of this glory cloud in the flesh. Jesus Christ is the dwelling place of God's glory, hallelujah. Also, this glory cloud was the pillar of fire And the pillar of cloud that traveled with Israel through the wilderness journeys. And it was also in the fiery burning bush. This represents the presence of God with men. It also showed up in the fire on the altar that came from heaven and seemed to represent this glory cloud. Hallelujah. It's described as brilliant light. It is both a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire in the wilderness it would insulate them from the heat of the day kind of like a built-in air conditioner it would provide warmth for them for the cool nights and it also provided for them protection and guidance notice also about the fire it's a fiery presence the fiery burning bush etc in acts chapter 2 the holy spirit descended and it says there that there were tongues of fire fulfilling John's prophecy because in John in Matthew chapter 3 verse 11 John the baptizer prophesied that the one that was coming after him would baptize with the holy spirit and with fire the fire and I noticed a few things and I thought about a few things about fire fire burns meaning it cleanses it purifies It burns off chaff, burns off deadness and impurities. Fire betters things. Gold is refined in the fire. Because it burns off the impurities, it makes it into pure gold. And we don't have to fear when God puts us through fire, because Emmanuel is with us even in the fire, just like he was with those Hebrew boys in Daniel chapter 3. Fire bites, it consumes everything else. It has no competition, swallows up everything in its path. It overrides and triumphs everything else. And it will be held back by none. Fire blazes, it lights up, it produces a brilliance and a radiance. It ignites Fire branches out. It becomes contagious and reaches out for more. Proverbs 30, verse 16 speaks of this and how the fire is never content to stay small. It never says, it's enough. I've had enough. I'm, it's big enough. I'm okay now. No, it never says that. It's always wanting more, always wanting more. Some spiritual lessons here about Fire. Which John the Baptized prophesied would be, we would be baptized with and immersed in. So, this was the sign in the Old Testament, primarily with the children of Israel through the wilderness and in the tabernacle and the temple. Imagine if you were one of the children of Israel in your tent, whether you were on the east, west, south, or north side of the temple, I mean, of the tabernacle of Moses. Imagine being in your tent or whatever when when the glory cloud, when God came down in the glory cloud and dwelt among his people in the tabernacle of Moses, wherever you lived in the camp, you could tell when God was in the house. When God came to the tabernacle, you knew it. What an awe-inspiring sight it was. What a fearsome and comforting sight to know that God himself in all of that splendor and in all of that power, he was there with you. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 20 through 22, it says this about that glory cloud. So they took their journey from Succoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So God was with his people. Then in chapter 14, Exodus 14, verse 19 and 20, it says this, And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one. And it gave light by night to the other. So that the one did not come near the other all that night. So this is when Pharaoh's army had tried to come after after. Uh, the children of Israel, and stopped them from getting away from him. And they were, remember, they were camped at the Red Sea, and the mountains were on either side of them. The um, Pharaoh's army was behind them, and the Red Sea was in front of them. So they were sort of hedged in in that moment. And so God took his very presence, that glory cloud, and he put it between his people and the Egyptians. And it was to them a scary sight, darkness and fierceness. But it was to his people, beautiful light and fire and warmth. Hallelujah. God makes a distinction between the people. And then in Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 10, we read more about this fire. Each of these speak to us of specific times and ways That the glory cloud of God's presence showed up for his people and acted in certain ways on their behalf. I noticed that when I was reading through these passages, all of them have one theme, even this one here in Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 10. God's glory was evident to them. It was fearful, it was comforting, it was glorious, beautiful, and majestic, it was awe inspiring and it was very real to them. Notice also, just like we mentioned a minute ago, that the same glory cloud that brought light to the one brought darkness to the other. The same glory cloud that led Israel to life beyond the Red Sea, led the Egyptian army to their death in the Red Sea. One thing becomes apparent and clear to me from the occurrences of God's glory cloud. And that is the coupling of his holiness and majesty with his goodness and mercy. They're coupled together, the two go together. In Exodus chapter 14, they needed God to shield and protect them, giving them final victory. In Exodus chapter 13, they needed guidance and protection. And in Exodus chapter 16, they needed food for sustenance even though they complained about getting it and complained about it before God gave gave it to them. The glory cloud showed both his awe, his holiness, his majesty, but also coupled with that his goodness and his mercy and his love in spite of sometimes their complaining and murmuring. Yet this shines through. This matches with Moses' experience also at the burning bush. Moses had encountered this fire, remember, at that burning bush. Hallelujah. Then we read, I want to read some of this to you in Exodus chapter 33, verse 1, all the way through the next chapter, verse 9. And I'm I'm not going to read it all, but I do want to read portions of this. I want you to see, first of all, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 15, God is saying, you know, this is after the golden calf episode, and God is saying to them, you know, hey, I promised y'all these things, I promised you the promised land, I'll give it to you, I'll send an angel before me to give it to you and to show you the way, but I'm not going. God said, you know, I'm not going. Y'all have rejected me, you know, made the golden calf, all of that. Turned me away. And so, you know, God's saying, uh, I'm just, I'm not going to go. And I want you to hear this. In verse 12 of Exodus chapter 33, I'm going to begin there. Then Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your your people. And he, meaning God, said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, Then Moses said to God, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Notice this. Moses was so hungry to live in God's presence. He was hungry to be with God. He was not willing to take the promised land and its wonderful fruit and its lush pastures. He didn't care about those things if God wasn't there with him. He said, God, if you're not going, I'm not going. I'd rather stay here in the wilderness with the dry, arid environment, with the sand, with the snakes, with the whatever, (laughs) dry air. I'd rather stay right here in this desert, in this wilderness with you than to go to a beautiful land, but you're not with me. You see, that's the way we should be. We should love God's presence so much we would be desperately hungry for God and for his presence. Hallelujah. That we will not even want his blessings without his presence. Do you see, beloved, there's a difference between seeking God's hand and seeking God's face. Praise God. Praise God. Every one of us can say, praise God forever for his hand, his goodness to us, the things he does for us, the things he provides, the ways he helps us and shows us and teaches us. But there's a difference between that and his face-to-face presence, being with him face-to-face, talking with him, loving him, being in that secret place under the shadow of the Almighty that we've talked about in the last few lessons of Psalm Psalm 91 and other places. Hallelujah. And Moses is like, God, I'm desperate to be where you are. Are you and I desperate to be where God is? Are we willing to say the same thing that Moses said here? If you don't go with us, then don't take me. Don't take us up from here. I want to be with you. I'd rather be with you than be over there without you. Let it be so of us as well. So God is desperate. I mean, Moses is desperate for God and for God's glory. And he prays and he asks the Lord to show him his glory. And so we read the story through this passage when God did, in fact, show him his glory. And we see how God God had to hide Moses and shield him because when his glory cloud passed through it was so powerful it would have destroyed him it would have 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 killed him in essence in first timothy 6 verse 13 through 16 it talks about how god dwells in unapproachable light in our human body our human condition and our human body cannot accept the holy presence of God. We can't look upon that. That's why it's called unapproachable light. In and of ourselves, we can't. God had to shield Moses' human eyes because he was not able to see God's brilliance in full and live. Moses saw only a glimpse, but it was enough to prove to Moses God's glamour, God's goodness, And God's glory and his name was proclaimed that he is abundant in grace and mercy one who forgives God's beautiful name was proclaimed there God is a radiant one so radiant that we can't even behold him in full and we can only take glimpses and even in the glimpses we're not seeing anything near to what he really is. He exceeds everything we could possibly know. He gets more brilliant with every new glimpse that we look at. In Exodus chapter 34 later, we read about Moses' shining face that after he had been with God for so long and in God's glorious, beautiful presence that his face shone so much that they had to put a veil over it for the people to be able to look at him this was the evidence that Moses had been with God beloved in Acts chapter 4 verse 13 it speaks of the evidence of us being with Jesus is it evident to people around us that we've been with Jesus can people tell that we have been with Jesus there's a glorious light to Jesus there's a glorious beauty to his gospel. I want to read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul is talking here. Let's read verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, should shine on them. So Paul is saying here that even the gospel of Jesus Christ is glorious. There's a light about it. It's beautiful. It's shining. It's glorious. Why is that? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's goodness revealed. Jesus was the revelation of the glory of God. Just like it was with Moses and God's glory that was revealing his goodness and his name, so it is with Jesus and with the gospel of Jesus. Glimpses of God's glory re- result in good things. He even gets more brilliant to us with each new glimpse. Now, why is it important to behold God's beauty? That's what David said. If you'll remember, in the last few weeks, we've read in Psalm 27, where David said, this one thing I desire, one thing, and that will I seek after. To dwell, to live in the house of the Lord, beholding his beauty and admiring him, thinking and contemplating upon him. I want to last finish up here in a little bit with this consideration in the last part of what we're going to talk about. What is the result for the Christian of beholding the glory, basking in his beauty and glory? Does it make a difference in our life? Have you ever wondered how real change can come to your life and to your heart? perhaps something you've struggled with for years would you ever be able to overcome it and be different from it well I want to tell you right now the answer is yes first of all John said so I mean Jesus said so in John chapter 8 in verse 36 he talks about whom the Son sets free is free indeed you don't ever have to go back to your old life again but I want us to look at another passage in 2 Corinthians chapter three, and I want us to consider and meditate on this chapter, and I think I'm going to read the whole chapter to you, and we're gonna talk about a few points of this. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, Now, that's referring to the scripture passage that I mentioned to you later um, a little while ago in Exodus chapter 34. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, What remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, Are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord hallelujah in this chapter Paul goes through many of these verses and he's contrasting the old versus the new that which is obsolete versus that which has come that which is passing away versus that which is remaining And is the more glorious and so he talks about several things here he talks first of all about the written epistle versus the living epistle of the people he talks about written by ink versus written by the Spirit of God tablets of stone versus tablets on the heart and in the flesh he talks about the source of sufficiency being self versus being Christ he talks about the old covenant being the letter that kills, versus the new covenant coming in through the work of the Holy Spirit that gives life. He talks about condemnation versus righteousness, veiled versus Christ removing the veil, the veil remaining versus versus the veil being removed when someone turns to Christ, and bondage versus liberty. Notice here, that when someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Reminded me of how God was in the burning bush, but he didn't speak to Moses until Moses turned to see. There's a turning to the Lord that is necessary. But what I really want to get to is the key verse here in verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. This is talking about the superior glory of Jesus. And when it is reflected in the mirror onto our unveiled face, it causes us to be changed into his image we begin to be transformed. That word is metamorpho. It's only used three times in the New Testament. Jesus, when he was on the transfiguration mount and he was transfigured, the veil was pulled back and he became his shining true self that was veiled begins to burst forth and shine through. It was used in Revelation 12 too, speaking of our minds being renewed or transformed and here in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. I'd like for you to think of it this way, metamorpho. It really is talking about from a caterpillar to a butterfly, butterfly that exchange and that transformation that goes forward. Think about it all also like this, like a seamstress with a sewing pattern or a potter and a clay. Notice that in each of these examples, the new is not the same as the old. In the seamstress example, you have a roll of cloth, but it's no longer just a roll of cloth. Now it's actually been made into a garment. The clay, instead of being a lump of clay, is now a vessel. And the caterpillar is no longer and never to be again a caterpillar, but now is a butterfly real change has occurred it's never ever going to be just a roll of clay of cloth again it's never ever ever going to be a lump of clay again and the caterpillar the butterfly will never ever ever be a worm again it reminded me of when we look in the mirror and we see maybe disheveled hair many of us have that now after the covid pandemic That's maybe a little bit common now. But normally, if you look in the mirror and you see disheveled hair, what will you do next? You're going to fix it. You're going to brush it. You're going to comb it. You're going to pull it back. Whatever you need to do to fix it. Why is that? Because now you see the reality of your condition. And this alters your perception of your condition, and alerts you to the need to change. Beholding God's glory, just like it speaks about here, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. When we look into the glory of the Lord, it helps us to see our true condition and to help us and alert us to the need to change in ways it reveals to us what we do not necessarily realize. And because of our desire to look our best, we want to make our hair fixed or we want to change or fix whatever's wrong. It's the same kind of way with this that Paul is talking about here, beholding the glory of the Lord as in a mirror. It's that same end result with us spiritually speaking. When we see the superior glory, compared to our state of reality, the change happens because our need connects with our desire for the correction. It's organic. It's genuine. It's living inside. It's not forced and contrived upon us. But we want to change. If you look in the mirror and your hair is all messed up, you want to fix it. You don't have to. But you want to. It's the same thing with this when we behold the glory of Jesus. Because of our love relationship with him, we want to change. We want to be more like him. We want to have our image match up with his image in reality more and more. Notice also that there's a progression mentioned here. He says, that we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Just as by the Spirit of the Lord. There's a progression. The best way I know how to describe this is with a ladder. You know, if you if I had a ladder behind me, behind me over here, we could climb that ladder, rung. By rung, by rung. We would start here, and then we would go from this level to the next level. And then we would go from that level to the next level, climbing up. And that's what it's talking about. This glory to glory is like the rungs of a ladder. We are climbing up from one level of glory to the next level of glory, rung by rung little by little did you know when the lord led the children of israel into the promised land the bible says that they conquered the land little by little that was a prophetic word also that they were going to conquer it little by little and that was god's way There's no condemnation when we look in the mirror, no despair, because we have the tools to fix whatever we see that needs fixing. We fix it because we want to. There's nothing going to happen to us. There's not going to be some hailstone out of heaven that beats us down if we don't. There's not going to be any lashing if we don't. No rules and regulations, but we have a sincere desire. To have the right image reflected, and that's what a love relationship with Jesus is all about. That's what beholding His glory is all about. We're living in that glorious presence where His light is shining upon us and is changing us. In Zechariah 4:10, it also speaks about not despising the day of small beginnings. You know, we might be down on the bottom rung, but we're on the bottom rung. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. And then by God's grace and by the work of the Spirit, it says right here, it's by the Spirit of the Lord. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by the Spirit of the Lord. That's also in Zechariah chapter 4. And it's right here, it matches with what Paul says right here in 2 Corinthians 3. It's the Spirit's work that will take us from that bottom rung that one level of glory to the next level of glory and to the next level of glory it's God's work in us rung by rung we're not in the same place that we once were we've left the other rung behind us as we move up step by step each step gets us closer to the top. Each step gets us closer to that same image of Jesus Christ that we beheld in the mirror. Hallelujah. And there's joy in that. The key to victory and transformation in your life, the key to becoming more like Jesus, growing more into his image, is to behold his glory Because according to Paul, when we behold his glory, we're changed from one level to the next level, to the next level, to the next level of glory, ever growing closer and closer to that image of Jesus, seeing his beauty in the mirror, hallelujah, and being in that secret place with him, loving on him, letting the Holy Spirit point out the areas that we need fixing is good news for us because he fixes us he changes us he's the one that does the work he's our sanctifier all we have to do is yield to him all we have to do is get on the ladder and stay on the ladder and then as he draws us to the next level we yield and we come up to the next level we let his work be complete in our life We let him change us in the ways that he's longing to change us. We let him fix the things that aren't like Jesus. And then guess what? We'll see one day we're at the next level. And then he's going to continue to work so that we keep climbing the ladder until when we see his beautiful face, we will be just like him. And we will be complete in him. And we will be made into the true image of jesus christ one rung at a time is how we get there this ladder of transformation one level of glory to the next because god's goal is to transform us into the image of jesus christ and this gives an invitation to us to forget the past the good the bad and the ugly And Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, as a matter of fact, let's read that. Let's read that right now. Philippians chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Paul says this, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. He's talking here about pressing on pressing forward, forgetting the things that lie behind and pressing on because there's more ahead. This upward invitation, this upward call, hallelujah. God wants us to come up higher and higher and higher on that ladder and be more and more like Jesus. Beholding the glory. David must have understood something like this because he longed to behold the glory of God in the house that he had prepared for it, that tabernacle of David. And it's all about beholding the glory because it's in spending time with God in that secret place and beholding his glory that we will be changed by the work of his Holy Spirit more and more and more into the image of Christ, one rung at a time and we will never be the same again beloved that's good news for each and every one of us i encourage you to enter that secret place and to let this tabernacle of david's study draw you to a place where you also are beholding the glory and being changed by it better and better one rung at a time closer the image of Jesus. I pray this has been a blessing to you tonight, and we'll continue, Lord willing, in the next few lessons as we continue forward in beholding the glory, this study of the Tabernacle of David and its beautiful relevance to us today. God bless you tonight. In Jesus' name.